Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of uh, UNS After Hours. We're very honoured to have Professor Van Holland with us today to share her experience with anthropological research in India. Professor Van Holland is the Head of Studies for Anthropology at UNS College. She received her Bachelor's from Brown University in Anthropology and Religious Studies, her Master's in Anthropology from the University of Pennsylvania, and a PhD in Medical Anthropology from UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco. Thank you, Prof, for joining us. Um, for the uninitiated, um, what is medical anthropology and what are some of the hot-button issues that scholars are concerned with of late? Uh, thank you, Alston, and thank you so much for inviting me to um, do this, this podcast interview with you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my, some of my work. Um, uh, medical anthropology is the study of perceptions, practices, and experiences of illness and healing from a comparative social cultural perspective. And so um, we use this approach to, to demonstrate how illness, health, medicine, and the body are uh, shaped by social, political, economic uh, relationships, um, and also by cultural values. And this is at, at multiple levels. So uh, we look at this within local communities, um, within nation states, and also on a, a broader global um, context. So um, another thing is that for, for medical anthropologists, uh, we consider all systems of medical knowledge and practices to be influenced um, by the social and cultural contexts within which they emerge and um, within which they, they continue to operate. And so uh, for us, this is uh, just as true uh, in the case of uh, biomedicine or what, what some people might think of as Western medicine or allopathic medicine um, as it is for, uh, you know, all any other kind of, of medical system of healing. So um, while you know, while a particular disease or a particular kind of bodily process, um, such as childbirth, for example, uh, while they, these, these things, you know, they may look generally the same everywhere from a biological um, point of view, the ways in which these bodily processes are understood and managed and experienced actually uh, varies significantly. Um, as a result of different cultural, political, and social economic contexts. And so um, medical anthropologists are very interested in, in explaining this. Um, we, we use uh, qualitative ethnographic research methods to try to understand these phenomena from uh, other people's perspectives. And uh, med medical anthropologists, many of them have a, a particular interest in trying to lay bare the reasons for um, health disparities around the world um, with an eye towards applying that knowledge to inform global and public health policy and to um, ultimately, of course, to improve health outcomes for all. Um, medical anthropology has grown to be you know, one of the largest and, and most robust subfields within anthropology. And so you find medical anthropologists studying a huge array of, of different topics. And so it's, it's hard to sort of um, you know, narrow it down and, and put your finger on particular hot button issues. But um, I, I guess I would say that some of the areas that have been generating a lot of interest lately um, would include um, things like studying 
institutional networks of things like global health and uh, or um, humanitarian health care in order to, to understand the social, political, and uh, importantly also the financial relationships that are, are sort of produced and, and reproduced through these, these kinds of projects. Um, I think there's also an increasing interest in studying non-communicable diseases, so um, particularly some of the big ones like uh, diabetes, heart disease, and, and cancer in a global context. And um, I, this, I think, parallels moves by global health institutions themselves to begin to pay more attention to non-communicable, non-communicable diseases um, around the world. And uh, so... As a medical anthropologist myself, one of the things that's always interested me is, you know, considering how people who are the targets for these new public and global health initiatives, um, you know, how do they feel about these programs and how do they respond to these kinds of programs? Um, so that's a, a kind of approach that's motivated uh, each of my own three major research projects. And so my first book was an ethnography of low-income women's experiences uh, with the medicalization of childbirth in, in South India. And um, by that, I mean the, the move to um, increasingly try to incorporate childbirth within hospital settings and managed by um, biomedical um, technologies and, and practices. My second book uh, looked at women's responses to new global health programs that were developed to prevent the transmission of HIV from mother to child. Um, And my current book project examines low-income women's perceptions of and and experiences with reproductive cancers, and uh, specifically cervical and uh, breast cancer in South India. And this is in the context of an emerging public health push to try to um, encourage uh, women to come for screening for cancers and also to try to improve um, access uh, to treatment for women with cancers. So the Handle with Care piece that um, you've been highlighting for this program is just one part of a a broader project. And I understand that um, a substantial portion um, of your research is conducted in India. Um, would you mind taking us through what your work as an anthropologist there is like? Yes, you're you're right. Almost all of my ethnographic research has uh, has been conducted in India. You know, some anthropologists tend to to change the regional focus of their research uh, across their careers, and it's not unusual for anthropologists to do their first major you know dissertation research somewhere far away from their their home base, but then to do subsequent research. Um, closer to home, and that's partly, of course, due to, to convenience um, sake. Uh, but I've, I've kept returning to India for my research, despite the, the challenges that that has, has posed for me logistically over the years when I have been um, based at the university in the, the United States. Um, I've also focused on a particular region within, uh, within India, and um, all of my ethnographic research in India has been based in the South Indian state of, of Tamil Nadu. My connection to Tamil Nadu actually goes back to my childhood experience living there briefly. And, and then I also spent my um, full senior year of uh, undergraduate um, college year in um, Tamil Nadu. 
And it was at that time that I began to learn the Tamil language and learn about history and, and cultural aspects of Tamil society. So as I'm sure you're very well aware, India is an extremely diverse uh, country. And um, I've, you know, it's diverse linguistically, culturally, politically. And, and I've found that my own sustained research in Tamil Nadu over the years has helped to deepen my understanding of that, that part of the world. Um, and uh, because I've been studying various aspects of women's health issues in Tamil Nadu for, for almost three decades now, um, that's a scary uh, thing to, to acknowledge, <laughs> I find that uh, you know, this kind of long-term engagement with the region, it helps me understand things from a deeper historical perspective. And I think it also helps me to see both continuities and um, disjunctures over time. Um, and these things wouldn't be apparent, you know, if I were working in vastly different parts of the world. In terms of your specific question about, you know, what my work as a medical anthropologist is like, it's it's hard to condense that down succinctly. But um, I would say that most of my research has been patient-centered, first of all. Um, and most of what I do in practice involves um, observation and also ethnographic research um, with people in their homes, people in clinical contexts, so in a wide range of hospital contexts, uh, with people in their engagements with civil society organizations, so whether they're NGOs or community-based organizations like um, support groups or uh, advocacy groups. Sometimes my, my research has also included being present at life cycle or religious rituals um, or even at uh, healing sessions of shamanic type um, healing practitioners. I also, I also conduct interviews with healthcare practitioners, um, mostly from the biomedical system uh, of healthcare, which is sort of the dominant system, but also uh, with practitioners from other systems of medicine that are, that are also quite commonly practiced in Tamil Nadu. So, for example, Siddha medical doctors and uh, homeopathic doctors, um, or even traditional midwives, for example. I, I conduct some interviews also with health policymakers and health project administrators, and uh, I try to gather policy um, reports and epidemiological reports, and media representations, and historical document documentation relating to my, my study. So you know, I try to sort of gather all of these uh, bits of, of information together um, and try to uh, weave them together in my analysis in conjunction with thinking about how they uh, relate to academic literature that's out there. So in your paper, Handle with Care, you advance the case that the ethics of cancer disclosure tends to overemphasize the importance of the content of information that may be disclosed or withheld, and underestimate the ways in which the act of disclosing or withholding could itself be evaluated as a symbol of care. So this is particularly evident in your ethnography involving female Indian cancer patients. Um, could the same be said for male Indian cancer patients? Um, so in what ways will the specificities of cultural logics affect the expectations of male cancer patients in India in receiving information about their medical condition? Uh, that's, that's a great, great, excellent um, question. I, unfortunately, I, d I don't think I can, you know, sort of give you a, a clear answer to that question um, because my work has, in fact, 
uh, focused on views and experiences of female cancer patients uh, and, and survivors. But, you know, I would say that this practice of non-disclosure of diagnosis and, and prognosis of cancers is certainly not exclusive to women in India. And I have a, a colleague, a medical anthropologist who uh, teaches in the um, Science, Technology, and Society program at MIT, Dwai Banerjee. And he's also been exploring the issue of non-disclosure of, of cancer patients based on his ethnographic research among low-income community members in, in and around Delhi. Uh, so it's a, a North India-based study. Um, and he does look at the practices of, of non-disclosure with male patients um, as well as female patients. So his analysis is quite similar to mine in many ways. And I think what's particularly interesting about his take on this is that he, he sees the practice of non-disclosure as a kind of strategy um, for testing the relative strength or vulnerability of pre-existing relationships um, among, among kin and among neighbors and other you know, very um, close relationships. So, for example, he shows that in the case of one male cancer patient, the act of non-disclosure within the family uh, actually serves to strengthen pre-existing positive bonds um, and that, that, you know, in order to allow husband and wife to cope with the present in, in the face of a potentially looming death. Um, whereas for another male cancer patient who, who's caught in a web of highly contentious family relationships, non-disclosure in that case, he says, um, serves as a mean to avoid social danger in an effort to survive. So just like the women in, in my study, um, Dwight Banerjee is also showing that for male cancer patients in India, non-disclosure can be interpreted and practiced you know, in different ways, depending on the particular context of that person's life. But I do think it, it would be very interesting to explore the gender difference more closely as you're, as you're, um, the, the, what you're asking about. And I think, you know, for example, in the narratives about non-disclosure for the male patients um, that Banerjee's study um, looks at, there seems to be a particularly strong emphasis on protecting men from feeling a sense of, of guilt that they you know, they may have this, this sense of guilt about not being able to financially provide for their families in the face of a poor prognosis. Women in my study also did express these feelings to a certain extent, uh, but I think this may be a little bit less pronounced, perhaps, with women. Um, whereas for, for the women in my study, there seemed to be a higher degree of concern about how their, their families would be able to cope without all the forms of, uh, you know, of non-paid labor that they um, provide as their, you know, as their family members have to come to terms with the fact that their cancer and even their cancer treatments themselves uh, may severely debilitate them uh, or ultimately take their lives. You also raised the point in your article that um, the way we think about ourselves and our bodies is culturally mediated. Um, so based on your experience working with different communities, um, what are differences or nuances in which concepts like body, health or medicine are apprehended? That's a big question. <laughs> um, it's a, that's also a really interesting question. I, I mean, I would say that there are, there are numerous examples of this throughout my work over the years, including the issue of uh, of non-disclosure that um, we've just been when discussing. So maybe I can um, touch on one other example from my, my current 
research, and that is the issue of um, perceptions about cancer causality. Uh, this is quite fascinating for me. Um, so one of the things that's been striking in this uh, research project is the discrepancy between the, the dominant public health discourse about cervical and breast cancer causality and risk on the one hand, and the narratives about cervical and breast cancer causality that are being articulated by lower-income women I met who are the targets of these public health programs, um, on the other hand. And so what I found was that the public health messages, um, this is as they're being expressed through these uh, educational campaigns, and they do this by combining um, discussions about causality for both breast and cervical cancer combined, and that's important in my study. So what they focus a great deal on was on um, thinking, uh, sort of representing causality as being a result of individual behaviors of women, um, and then encouraging women to uh, avoid these particular behaviors. And uh, the focus here was particularly on changing reproductive and sexual practices uh, to avoid, again, both uh, cervical and, and breast cancer. So, for example, when you look at these um, messages combined as they're presented in these educational programs, women are told that they should um, neither marry too young um, nor should they marry too late. And they're also uh, told that they should not have uh, too many children um, nor should they have too few children. They're encouraged to, to engage in sexual relationships only within marriage. They're discouraged from having multiple abortions. And they're encouraged to breastfeed exclusively. And there, there, are, also, there are other me messages uh, also conveyed, including things about diet and, and exercise. Um, so, you know, while I appreciate the fact that these public health programs are, are extremely well-intentioned and are genuinely trying to improve women's health, I, you know, I also see these discourses of cancer causality as being culturally and morally charged discourses and um, about, you know, trying to present uh, certain ideas about appropriate normative behavior for women. The problem with this is that, you know, it can make women feel that other people will think that they are to blame if they do, in fact, get cancer. On the other hand, when I listen to what lower-income women had to say about cancer causality and their ideas about this, they even framed risk of cancer as being linked to a whole host of other economic, environmental, and social factors that were, in fact, beyond their control and that they think are making them increasingly vulnerable to cancer. So, for example, they talk, you know, talked about the ways that recent droughts have exacerbated conditions of poverty in their communities and that that in turn has compromised their health in general, including making them more vulnerable to, um, to problems with cancer. And um, they also, there was an intense sense of anxiety about the possible carcinogenic effects of chemical pesticides, chemical fertilizers, and hormones um, that they, uh, you know, were worried about consuming through the food that they were eating. Um, and they thought that this may be an important contribution to what 
again, they perceive to be increasing rates of, of cancer in the, the community. Women also felt overwhelmed, they would tell me, by this um, kind of rising demands on their work schedules. And they told me that they were, uh, as women, they were increasingly working a double shift, juggling, you know, work for pay to support their families financially, but also being responsible for the unpaid labor of, of childbirth, um, childcare, cooking, etc. What they said was this physical, mental, and emotional stress from this um, sort of double work burden was taking uh, an enormous toll on their bodies and on their health, and that that was leading to increases in cancer. Um, and then the, the sort of final piece of this that I, I'll add here is that in uh, many instances, they, they, there were also ideas about the importance of maintaining a proper balance of hot and cold properties in the body um, in order to main health, maintain health. These ideas um, were sort of folded into their, uh, the, the other frameworks of causality. And these are kind of medical frameworks of knowledge that are, are quite prevalent um, in India and are linked to theories of the body um, through Ayurvedic and Siddha medical practices, among other things. Just to, for example, just to kind of explain this a little bit more clearly, women with cervical cancer, several uh, times women would report to me that it was because they were overworking in the current economic context, that their bodies were now becoming excessively overheated. As a result, this was leading to excessive uh, vaginal white discharge and also excessive vaginal bleeding. And that, in turn, they considered to be the cause of cervical cancer. I think, you know, in addition to articulating grievances about gendered relations of labor through these, these narratives about uh, work. I also, at some level, I see these narratives as serving to deflect away from uh, what they might you know, expect to be a kind of moral blame, that they've gotten cancer um, because they didn't follow the kinds of uh, behavioral guidelines uh, precisely that the, the public health messages are promoting. Um, so in that way, I think these we can also in part see these as, as narratives to try to kind of claim a sense of virtue and, and respectability that a cancer diagnosis may in fact throw into to question for them. Um, so I'm very interested in all these these kinds of competing discourses of, of cancer causality. And I guess what's important to uh, just underscore is that the it's both the public health discourses as well as the discourses of the lower income women who are the targets of these uh, interventions, um, you know, that both of these things are being culturally and, and socially mediated. Thank you for your time, Professor. Uh, before we go, would you mind sharing one surprising insight you have gained from a research in medical anthropology? Well, yes, I guess <laughs> that's a I, I think um, there's so many things that are, are always in, in, forever surprising. I, you know, I think one of the things I love about being an anthropologist is that I am forever surprised, um, always learning new things about the world that we live in. You know, we have a saying in anthropology um, that the purpose of anthropology is to make the strange familiar and to make the familiar strange. As, as anthropologists, I think that in some ways we thrive on the element of surprise because, uh, you know, we're trying to understand and 
appreciate diverse experiences of life in the world. At the same time, that forces us to reflect on our own assumptions about how we live our lives. And that can also provoke a sense of, of surprise um, through that kind of reflection. I, th- I think our research as anthropologists also makes us more and more aware of how the ways that we live our lives and the, the kinds of decisions that we make in our lives matter. And that they matter not only in our own close-knit communities, um, but that they also impact the lives of people around the globe in our increasingly interconnected world. So in the end, the question's not just what surprises us, but what should we do in response to um, that element of surprise? Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Uranus After Hours. This episode is written and hosted by Austin Young from the Class of 2021 and edited by Siddharth Chatterjee from the Class of 2021 with assistance from Nico Nazareth from the Class of 2022 for music composition. Once again, if you'd like to learn more about Professor Van Holland and her research, the link in the description box will bring you to her bio. If you enjoyed our podcast, consider subscribing and we'll be back next week with a new episode. Till we meet again, goodbye.